In ancient times, hundreds of years before the dawn of history, lived a strange race of people, the hair metalists. <laughs> no one knows who they were or what they were doing, but their legacy remains. Tune in to the living rock and or roll of cinema. Hello and welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined tonight by Scott. Hello. And in this episode, we're going to take a look at two films following the story of two remarkably similar heavy metal bands. In one film, <laughs> a group who once tasted success find fame dwindling quickly in the early 1980s and seek to recapture their glory moment with ill-fated tours, terrible venues with single-digit tendencies, issues with management and record labels, creative fallings out, and the finale saved by unanticipated success in Japan. This film also features Rob Reiner. And the other film is This is Spinal Tap. In many ways, the films are hard to tell apart. Really, it's only the frankly bewildering lack of drummers dying by spontaneous combustion, (laughs) or in bizarre gardening accidents, best left unsolved, that separates the mockumentary This is Spinal Tap from the documentary Anvil, the story of Anvil. Okay, a little hyperbolic of course, though there are remarkable parallels between the two stories. But is that because Anvil's story, through either veracity or editing, mirrors that of Tap? Or is it just because This is Spinal Tap simply put a comic spin on a common story in the world of music? Well, to put some perspective on things, but hopefully not too much perspective, my good friend over there is going to get our conversation started with Rob Reiners. That's the Rob with one B. <laughs> This'll get confusing. Uh, the director of Rob Reiners' 1984 classic. Yes, my mind fair boggles with the notion that there are people out there that haven't seen or heard of This Is Spinal Tap, but I, mean, I suppose the nature of humanity is there's about 250 of us born every minute. None of whom, despite my repeated letters to the comptroller, have the genetic memory of watching Rob Reiner's <laughs> documentary. Uh, government mandarins, man, you just can't rely on them. Uh, Michael McKean's David St. Hubbins and Christopher Guest's Nigel Tufnell grew up together and formed a musical partnership that spans decades and several differing names from the originals to the new originals and the Thamesman, uh, scoring a few hits before finding their true calling. But the band, now known as Spinal Tap, became the heavy metal monoliths of the 70s, although the now 80s. Uh, sees their popularity on the wane. Uh, the current is- iteration of Tap sees St. Hubbins on lead guitar, Tufnell on lead guitar <laughs> too, uh, Harry Shearer's Derek Smalls on the bass, and David Caff's Fifth Savage on keyboards. And of course, RJ Parnell's Mick Shrimpton as the latest in a long series of short-lived drummers. They're starting a tour in America t- to promote their latest album, Smell the Glove, not yet in shops due to their indefensibly sexist cover art preferences, while their long-suffering manager Ian Faith, played by Tony Hendra, must try and resolve this while keeping the band's egos suitably massaged. They were joined on tour by director Rob Rainier, as director Marty DeBerge, charged with capturing the band in a way that many a high geographic tour documentary of the time would, however the band are drawing less than a tenth of the audience they'd grown used to, and aren't happy about it, causing some bickering. It only intensifies when St Hubbins girlfriend Janine, played by June Chadwick, shows up with her astrological charts and designs on becoming co-manager. It doesn't help that amongst the parodies of rock star problems like Tufnell's struggle with miniature bread, everything. <laughs> it's the <laughs> film's M&M moment in a way, isn't it? Yes. 
Uh, everything else is failing too. Uh, the record label doesn't want to promote their albums. The venues aren't just smaller, they're roundly inappropriate for their music. And there's the small problem of the dimensions of the set dressing. Uh, fractures in the band grow as some semblance of reality penetrates their bubble with their manager and eventually Tufnell quitting. Uh, but the remnants resign themselves to having suddenly having more time to uh, work on discarded projects like a Jack the Ripper musical, until fortuitously, as we mentioned in the intro, their latest classy single, Sex Farm, hits big in Japan, giving the tour a much-needed second wind. Well, first wind, really. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yes, as with most comedies, it's less of a plot as it is a loose framework to explore the characters and, well, take the care of them. And it's tough to predict, as with anything, if this will chime with your particular sense of humour, dear listener, um, for what it's worth. Spinal Tap is as funny a film as I have ever seen, and I don't find that it gets any less funny any of the multiple times I've gone back to see it. Just a number of incredibly great ensemble performances. Um, of course, chiefly the the axis of uh, McKean Guest and uh, Harry Shearer, uh, all of whom do just tremendous character work. There's almost no line in this film that I don't find funny. Uh, it's almost as though it was written to be attuned almost entirely to my sense of humour. <laughs> I think there's maybe the one scene where they're having the breakup, which isn't quite played for comedy, uh, but every other scene makes me laugh in some form or other, and it has done every time I've watched it. A bunch of uh, great uh, cameos from people you've probably recognised as well, from either other works that Christopher Guest has done, or others, you know, Fred Willard's there, Dana Carvey's there, Billy Crystal's there, Patrick McNee's there, a lot of... Uh, just throw away one one line performances that thrown up to just to do this. Angelica um, Houston, yes, of all people. <laughs> very strange. I don't. I don't really have a great deal to say about it, other than it's incredibly funny. I mean, it's but it's not particularly original. Um, certainly, was the documentaries were done well before this. Indeed, uh, you probably want to look at the Rootles, and uh, all you need is cash in nineteen seventy eight for a take on the uh, Beatles' uh, career, but which is very similarly structured, but I think of all the things that I've seen, this one is perhaps what defined it going forward mm-hmm. as a as a sort of a sub-genre of this little, like a little mockumentary thing. Um, it's and the Christopher up, Guest cottage industry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Christopher Guest has been chasing this dragon for basically his entire career, and to be fair, he's actually got pretty close on a number of occasions. But yeah, this this is the high point in everyone's <laughs> everyone's career from before it's worth. Just an incredibly funny, great central performances. Uh, something that's just giving and giving. You can go back to it on DVD. You can listen to the commentary where they give a commentary track in a character, which is, again, about as funny as the film was on the first release as well. Even just uh, the... I can't remember if it's on the DVD now. It's certainly even on the Blu-ray. Just the, the sound that comes up, the audio that comes up from the menu alone... <laughs> I just sat and listened to that for 10 minutes before starting the film and I watched this again a couple of days ago. <laughs> yeah, um, so many scenes have just sort of eked its way into culture. If you've not seen it before, you, you kind of want to see this just for those scenes. Things like Tufnell's uh, going up to 11, uh, the scene with the the amps and uh, the, the nun more black. Uh, like when they're describing the album cover, uh, lots of bits that I think have just kind of worked their way into the the modern culture. That uh, this is where it comes from, and it's very funny watching it in context. Um, yeah, I absolutely adore this film, and I was very happy to go back and see it again. I presume you feel the same way, Drew, from everything I know about. Almost, I, I don't think I have quite the the love for it you do, Scott. But it's it sounds like it's not far off. It, yeah. 
it's um it's one of those films about which it is very very easy to become utterly insufferable um <laughs> in the way that for instance monty python fans can be really annoyed by just quoting everything um, yes it's it's such a quotable film because there's so many outstanding lines so many almost all of which are improvised yeah and it's hard to restrain yourself so if you recognized any of the things in the film you, you in my introduction to this podcast you know that i didn't even try to restrain myself <laughs> uh slipping in some references there but it is such a funny film and when you're when you really enjoy it like we do you look at all the the deleted scenes and things like that and but even while a lot of them are deeply deeply funny i think one of the the greatest achievements that this film pulled off um with rob reiner and so i'm just checking who the editor was so i don't amazingly what three editors really yeah, I'm yes. not particularly familiar with the names of any of them. But. It was quite a project. There's a three and a half hour work print floating around, which um, is not worth doing, I think. I think what you're about to say is they did a really excellent job editing it down to 90 minutes of absolute excellence. Um, yeah, that's, but, yeah. Um, yeah, I think there there is a there is some talk, I think, of a, of a five hour version at some point. Yeah. Um, but what, yeah, what they've done is a particularly excellent job of editing it down. And what is... T- it's so good. It's, yes, the, the, there is literally hours and hours of footage that they could have used, and they've taken it down to a ninety-minute film of just almost unending genius. <laughs> and what is remarkable about that too is a lot of improvised work, in particular, can get really, really self-indulgent. Yeah, and particularly lately, guys like Paul Feig have been just letting their cast just just go and do stuff, and he's. He's he's captured a lot of stuff that really should have been left on a cutting room floor. Yes, witness, the, witness Ghostbusters twenty sixteen. Yeah, there's a good half hour could have been exercised on that, which is clearly just improvised material that just isn't good at all. Yeah, yeah this is ruthless, and I say, apparently, if you're a fan of the film, there's a lot of this stuff that's really funny, um, and an entire exercise subplot about a. Uh, a girl group that support them, and that's the explanation for the migrating mm-hmm. hairpiece source um, yeah. on their faces. But it's um, it, it's refreshingly ruthless, and that may be in part due to the fact that the it's directed by someone not involved in like explicitly in the actual um, improvisation part of it. Yeah, that's mostly the cast. I mean, it was written. I guess it's written more like a framework yeah. off of which they rift. Some when you look at the, the stuff that Christopher Guest went on to do, and this film gave rise to Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show. Uh, and even if for some reason you didn't like This Is Spinal Tap, the fact that those films exist is a reason enough to be glad for the existence of This Is Spinal <laughs> <Yeah>. Tap. <laughs> but uh, his his films certainly can suffer a bit from being a bit flabby. Um, a wee bit self-indulgent and I don't mm. know if that's because the writer and the star are the same person or the director and the star are the same person it's helping you get into his much more disappointing stuff like For Your Consideration mm. uh, it's like that could really do with uh, you know being a bit more vicious with the the cutting mm. yeah, particularly anything that had Ricky Gervais in it too but <laughs> Which may have been quite a lot of the film fall, I remember now, it's so long since I've seen it, but I, I don't really have a problem with, with that. Uh, <laughs> rants about Ricky Gervais for another time, perhaps. Yeah, it's just, everybody is doing such good work, and there's such 
there's such respect amongst the cast as well that for anything that's improvised, there's always so much potential for ego to get in the way. Mm. For either somebody to think, oh, right, this person said this thing. Oh, I'm going to say something now and it'll be really funny or to like, or to want their moment in the spotlight. And what's remarkable about this is Spinal Tap, there's so many scenes where actually the rest of the cast know, you know what's funny? If we just say nothing. Yeah. If we too, our characters are just completely ignorant of why this is funny and just let the audience get there without the characters yeah. having to say anything. And it's it's really nice uh, and it's quite rare in anything improvised really. I think also it works because, yes, as you said, with things like the Ruttles, Scott, there have been other mockumentaries, but, but this is like the the mockumentary um and it is also because in terms of if you've ever seen like documentaries about bands and things and it's why this in so many ways feels like the film we're going to talk about next is that a lot of the actual mechanics of it ring true yeah obviously it's played for yucks a lot of it and it's it's ridiculous (laughs) like the, the drummer thing in particular, although that's every time I see the drummer spontaneously combust at the end of the film, I just crack a rib. I've seen this like 80,000 times and it's still funny. Uh, <laughs> that and the uh, the description of one, I think it's one of their third drummers who choked on vomit, but not his own. And they don't know whose vomit is. You can't dust for vomit. <laughs> yes. uh, again, that's, that's, it's so difficult not to just say and quote um, this film to you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Apart from, yeah, okay, it's, it's stuff from that world made ridiculous. But it's a kind of ridiculous world anyway. Yeah, it seems like it did not need much of a push to become ridiculous. From <laughs> Yeah, and there are, you see, like, Ralph Brown's character in in Wayne's World 2, who's going on about the M&Ms, but that's coming from a real thing. It's actually, the original story of that bowl of M&Ms thing was more a test of well, the people were actually paying attention to the band's rider rather than it being a kind of diva moment. Mm. But that sort of thing, you have actually heard other bands taking it as a serious thing. And yeah. it's there's so much kind of ridiculous nonsense in this world. And add to that simply the, the technicalities of the way it's shot that I, mean, I, I really fail to believe that anyone would actually think this is true. But there's enough trappings and enough of a whiff of truthiness yeah. about it that, that that's what makes it work so well I think uh, and then you come to a film like Anvil that has so many similarities in it you're like yeah okay I kind of get why they're seeing <laughs> yeah. that this feels like the real life Spinal Tap <laughs> hmm. uh, I just I could I could watch this film endlessly and <laughs> there's just so many bits too I mean and it has to be it wouldn't work otherwise for everybody in it really has to be really earnest yeah and deadpan uh, mm-hmm. but i don't i generally don't know how they do it sometimes when you have the the scene where marty de Berge and nigel tufnell are <laughs> um, at the piano yeah and Mar- uh, nigel's talking about how he's just he's kind of he's noodling around with a sweet piano thing and it's a really kind of nice bit of music yeah and uh <laughs> And it starts. It's, it's kind of vaguely funny for students. Like, uh, you know, you know, just just simple lines intertwining. You know, very much like. Well, I'm really influenced by Mozart and Bach, and it's sort of in between those. Really, it's like a Mach piece. 
<laughs> and I'm like, okay, and then, then you, he plays a bit of it, and it, yeah, it's, it's this kind of nice melodic piano piece, and it's quite kind of sort of verging towards romantic, and it's certainly kind of yeah. thoughtful. And then Marty DeBerg says, "What do you call this?" And Christopher Guest, absolutely deadpan, just says, "Well, this is piece is called Lick My Love Pump," <laughs> <laughs> and it's so that combined with, and it's. Anything, any sort of musical parody actually lives and dies in this. And it's why something like, it's from about 10 years ago now, scarily, but Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Yeah. Starring the always excellent John C. Riley. One of the reasons it's so good is that while the music it can be like a pastiche and certainly the, the lyrics and the style can be a bit silly, perhaps, they're still, they're A, good songs. Yeah, as long as perhaps you don't pay too much attention to the lyrics, but um, <laughs> they are musically sound, um, and they're actually they come from people who a understand the music they're parodying and b like the music they're parodying. Yeah, and it's something in um, oh, a, a mighty wind, another Christopher Guest mockumentary I really like actually. Uh, music plays a big part in that too, but the the music all works, and you can listen to it separately from the film very easily, and as I have done with Spinal Tap many many times. Hmm. and if you don't have someone writing music who understands the music but cares and likes the music it just comes across as really kind of shallow and struggling to put quite into words why this is but it just doesn't work as well whereas you this can, you can always part, tell the difference between an affectionate parody and something that is just you know viciously trying to go for the yeah, throat and yeah. make fun of it viciously or lazily yeah. or often yeah. both yeah uh, so that's a big, big part of why this is Spinal Tap works so well, and it's why this spoof band actually managed to launch a career as an actual band. Yeah, which is, I suppose, life imitating art in a way, but uh, <laughs> it's so, so, so strange. But yeah, so all of that together, it's it's really good performances, really, really ruthless editing, great performances from everybody involved, with really strong writing framework that began with affectionate parodies of the music and all of it's just put together to be this kind of magical film that seems to capture a real truthiness about the people they're making fun of but is kind of maybe thinking these people seem a bit daft rather than these people are idiots or anything like that (laughs) and it's i actually love this film yeah um and just because i didn't really say it earlier I guess I think this time through when I watched it maybe a bit more critically um, I appreciated what Robin Rainier was doing a bit more um, because he's mostly off camera I, I tend to kind of forget that he's actually in it at all for most of it but a lot of the funniest moments come from his just prompting and interplay and he's, he's enabling so much of it yeah he's a facilitator well. very much yeah. a facilitator <laughs> yeah because um, they're very famous the live the least go to live and scene mm-hmm. um and it's just, again, and Rob Reiner's not a great actor, although he does turn up in things like The Wolf of Wall Street as Leonardo DiCaprio's dad. He is fantastic. Yeah. But he's just, he's also managing to deliver that deadpan. It's like, well, why not just make 10 louder and make them go to 10? But yeah, he's just he's just feeding the lines in the right way as well. So he is yeah. an integral yeah. part of it. Just... Just one last thing, just the one last quote, I'll shoehorn in before we go on an anvil, but just because it tickled me so much this time round. Um, it's an odd name, St. Hubbins, isn't it? Well, he's an odd patron saint. Was he a patron saint of quality footwear? 
But I, I, for some reason, I'd managed to largely forget that line, and that cracked me up for yeah. this time as well. It's, yeah, it's, it, it is one of those films about which it's very, very easy to get absolutely insufferable yes. um, because you just want to quote it again and again. And it, like, if you've got other people who like the film as well, you probably just enjoy yourselves like throwing lights back and forward. But for uh, for regular people, yes. they're probably just going to want you to you know stop breathing for a couple of hours or something. Yes. Cease and desist. Uh, so I guess that's what we'll do with this. I'm going to talk about a film that is, in most respects, absolutely identical. <laughs> so. Yes. Uh, yes. So, formed in Toronto in 1981 by high school friends Steve Lips Kudlow, guitarist, and Rob Reiner. Not also lead guitarist, in this case, drummer. Um, but <laughs> not the same Rob Reiner, just to keep you straight here. Anvil reached the zenith of their career when they were one of the headliners of the Super Rock Festival that toured Japan in 1984 alongside bands like Bon Jovi, White Snake, and Scorpions. While those other acts went on to sell millions of records, for some reason, Anvil didn't. Despite, as attested to by the talking heads who populate the film's opening, such as Motorhead's Lemmy, Guns N' Roses' Slash, and Metallica's Lars Ulrich, being influential and well-regarded musicians and having helped to define that era of heavy metal music. The band's two main members, and the rest of the band, including a paltry one drummer in all of that time, <laughs> it's like they're not even trying, <laughs> remained together for the next three decades, and Anvil have, to date, recorded 16 studio albums. This documentary, though, produced and directed by Anvil fan and their former roadie, Sacha Gervasi, follows the band as they worked towards the production of their 13th album, the imaginatively titled This Is 13. As the film begins, we meet Lips and Rob and learn of their modest lifestyles, with Lips driving a van for a catering company and Rob working in the building industry. But that's just how they pay the bills, and it's clear that their true passion remains music, playing regular gigs to a small group of hardcore fans, which seems to nourish them creatively, but it's clear they resent their lack of commercial success. After a seemingly out of the blue tour is arranged for them by a fan, Tiziana Aragone. The band spend the summer in Europe, though nothing ever seems to be as it was promised, and the crowds, or conspicuous lack thereof, are deeply disheartening. However, the relative failure of the tour does seem to spur them to improve the quality of their new album by hiring the late English record producer Chris Sangavides, who had done a great job on their highly regarded second album, Metal on Metal, and then the film finishes by following them through the process of recording the album of Sanguides, their moment of crisis, and then their salvation, of a sort, by a call from Japan. Hmm. There's not much more about the structure you want to know. It's a documentary about a band. Um, what I just remarked was that in so many ways it does seem to mirror what happens in uh, Spinal. This Is Spinal Tap. Now, yeah. As I mentioned, like, part of that yeah, there's bound Maybe. to be some intentionality behind the editing yeah, here. But. Yeah, clever editing and and such like. But I, first of all, I don't think I'd ever heard of Anvil before. No. In fact, no. I'm certain I've heard it until trailers for this started appearing when this was released a decade ago. Yeah. And I remember thinking, that that looks reasonably interesting. And I, I remember at the time uh, people saying, yeah, it's like a real life, this is Spinal Tap. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So naturally I waited a decade to watch it. <laughs> But yeah, it's it took me a little while to, to warm to it, partly because this really, really isn't my type of music. Hmm. And 
whereas Spinal Tap has a whole range of music. There's kind of like the Beatlesy stuff, like yeah. two different eras of the Beatles they do. Then there's um, kind of yes prog rock stage, and then there's sort of some heavy metal, but it's more towards the rock end of things. And I like rock, but I don't really care for heavy metal. So there's a mix in Spinal Tap, whereas Anvil is very much heavy metal, and it's not really my sort of music. So it's taken me a wee bit of a while to get into it, but the characters are are reasonably compelling. It's quite early. I find that I'm I'm feeling some sympathy for them because they're really passionate, and then they've got a couple like really hardcore fans who've been with them for the thirty years they've been together. But then you see, yeah, they're largely playing in a pub on a yeah. Saturday night. Um, they've recorded so many studio albums and they were at this huge tour. Mm. But now they're in a pub on a Saturday night and there's like eight people. And you know, it's just <laughs> like, um, they're not really trying to hide it with the way it's shot. There's, there's nobody there. Yeah. Um, and they do try to obscure the crowd later for that big reveal in Transylvania, at which point I just felt yeah. so horrible for them. I felt heartbroken. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they, but they managed to engender quite a bit of sympathy. I, mean, I think probably Rob Reiner, the drummer, is a bit less sympathetic character than Lips. But Lips is just, he seems kind of like, there's almost like a hippie mentality to him. Yeah. You know, the sort of love everybody and forgive everybody kind of thing. And even when he gets angry, he comes back and tries to sort things out quite quickly. And he's just kind of a nice guy. And then, but it's still, it's reasonably ordinary at that point. It's like, uh, yeah, they had a bit of success never really worked for them they've never been able to let go of it and you see that they do have a supportive family and supportive wives but you get the idea they're beginning to to get a bit tired of it mm. like you know it's not going to happen for you maybe this this tour in Europe that's your last shot yeah um, and then so it starts to get a little bit more interesting there and actually just before I move on to when it becomes more like Spinal Tap what they was actually making me feel a little bit like was, or reminded me a little of, was Searching for Sugar Man. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just because Rob Reiner works in construction, um, <laughs> because that's what uh, Rodriguez was doing for the time when he didn't realise he was famous, but there was bits of it kind of reminded me of that, sort of one's great star who had sort of fallen on hard times and never really looked to be able to get back to it. Uh, I Top tip, by the way, another, if you're interested in music documentaries, watch Searching for Sugarman because it's great. But um, then, so we move on to Europe, and that's where it begins to get very spinal tappy. So you see them playing in little venues, and they get lost in Prague for like three hours or something, two or three hours, and turn up at the the pub in the end, and there's like three drunk men there, and it's the entire crowd they play to. But at the same time, that's where I really started to to warm to them you see lips talking about you know i'll play it in an empty room i just care about the music uh, and you see that there's like an undercurrent there that he's that he thinks yes okay I, I love the music but still i feel like i'm owed something or like i missed something when other people around me at the time in the early 80s got it yeah but then you actually see them playing with a lot of energy um a lot of passion to a room that turns out to have four people in it yeah. I was like, ah, okay, he's not he's not b***ing about that he would play to an empty room and he really cares about the music. He clearly does. At which case, at which point I really started like, oh, I, I really hope this ends well. I really had no <laughs> idea where it was going. And so then it just, it follows the band and there's, they mess up the 
their transport and stuff and their management seems kind of farcical because it's basically been done by an amateur yeah uh, somebody who was just a fan and at first i thought she was a scam merchant when you heard about that but just somebody contacted her from europe said i've arranged a tour for you like mm. <laughs> it wasn't a nigerian prince or something or there's something dodgy <laughs> sounding here but, no but as they go around europe you see you kind of begin to really warm to them and lips in particular he's just he just seems like a good soul I think he's probably foolish in some regards, but he's just a good soul, and the, the film just seems to... It doesn't feel like it's manipulative. Mm. It, it does feel quite authentic. Now, that may just be very, very good editing or something. I don't know. I prefer to think, though, that it is, there's just something likeable about this guy as he follows the band around. And you're, so you begin to feel really bad. And then the absolute nadir of the film, when they go to this... You think to the... F- you see them, they're in Germany and they're, they're told oh, there's supposed to be posters promoting them and there's basically somebody had written a bit, their name on a bit of paper. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it felt at that point almost like the scene in This Is Spinal Tap when they're next to the puppet theatre. Yeah. <laughs> or on the same bill as the puppets. And they're like, oh, we've got a bigger dressing room than the puppets. Great. <laughs> and then you see that they go to this concert, a big, it's meant to be a big metal festival in Transylvania. And there's actual real posters, professionally printed posters, and they're top built. Oh, right, okay, great. And what an absolute gut punch when you find out they're in this 10,000-seater arena that 174 people turned up to. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the that's the one time they're really hiding things um, with the editing, but for, for a real good payoff later on. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really feel manipulated. I think it actually worked really well dramatically. Because um, it's very, you have to be very careful in documentary not to just, you know, try and tell a narrative. You should really be trying, if you can, to just show the truth. Yeah. To a degree, anyway. Uh, uh, yeah, and then, so, it begins to fall apart, but they come back to Canada, Lip says, basically, didn't earn a penny from that, but I would do it again in a heartbeat. <laughs> and again, the way Sally he's portrayed in the film, you believe it. It's like he just, I don't know, he just loves playing music. Yeah. And then it's like, right, okay. It's our management and our record label screwed us over. Let's going to get go back to the Grammy Award or Grammy nominated producer that produced our second album, the one that really made us famous. And then you follow that, then it's you get that thing at the end. It's the mirror spinal tap of a call from Japan. Come to this, do this gig in Japan, and then you start feeling really bad for them too because you think it's going to be Transylvania again. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, we've come all this way from Canada to Japan and we're on at 11.30 in the morning. Oh no, here we go again. And then you just get that wonderful reveal and it's... At the back of my mind, there's always this feeling that maybe I'm being manipulated. Mm-hmm. But I really, really felt for this band. Not my <laughs> type of music at all, but I just I, by the end of this film, if I was being manipulated, it was done expertly because I really, <laughs> really wanted it to go well for them. I, I couldn't stand seeing them be disappointed again. Yeah. And so, yes, with that caveat that that's possibly what is happening, at the same time, I still found it very rewarding and really, really enjoyable, and I'm glad that I watched it. It's not as entertaining as This is Spinal Tap, naturally. Yeah. Um, But it is as music documentaries go one of the best ones i've seen sorry i feel like i've talked for about an hour scott would you like to interject <laughs> no uh, largely mirror everything you're saying with it it's, it's just a really likable film because the characters are just very likable i don't feel as though they're 
delusional. I mean, they know what's going on, but they're just not letting it affect their mentality of just wanting to, you know, do what they want to do. Yeah. Um, and it, it's nice to see that kind of work pay off in the end. That's, that's I think, what makes it uh, a likeable watch. Um, and it is frequently pretty funny. Largely unintentionally, I suppose, <laughs> some of the things that Lip says is... I don't think he meant them to be funny, but nonetheless they are. Um, but they're charming. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's all just a, a very entertaining watch. And uh, yeah, it turns out to be quite an uplifting one at the end. Uh, yeah, it, it's a really entertaining film. And I think it's worth anyone uh, having a look at. It's uh, certainly not a hard-hitting documentary that's going to change your opinion on anything. But in terms of it just being an entertaining watch... It's as entertaining a documentary as you can get, so if that's the kind of thing you're looking for, uh, this would certainly be high on everyone's list, and I highly recommend it. Like yourself, just do not not watch it for a decade after you heard about it, <laughs> just because you didn't get around to it. No, it's, it's really good, and uh, it does deserve the, the plaudits that it got. And uh, likewise, metal, not my music at all. But it did seem to work uh, pretty well for these guys. I don't know if Anvil are actually any good at all, but there's enough talking heads at the start that were proclaiming their influence at least on his yeah, early stuff that 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 big album of theirs metal on metal was 450 odd in rock or rolling stones 500 greatest heavy metal albums of all time right now, if there were only 700 heavy metal <laughs> albums that's maybe not so good but i assume there are thousands of the things so yeah it's in a big list of respected music magazines so that's something i guess <laughs> uh, yes, this is certainly an instance where I can heartily recommend both films that we talked about today. So that's it's always a good thing to to get to the end of and say. And happy ending after Anvil too, that it actually made people re-examine their music and they got some success off of the back of it. And people sort of reevaluated the music and said, "Yes, it's quite good." Yes, and then <laughs> like one of their songs that's featured in the six 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 was apparently used in the the film version of it. They came out at the end of last year. Okay, um, I didn't. I didn't notice it, but I, I wouldn't. wouldn't have, I wouldn't have noticed because <laughs> I was too busy um, hating that film for other reasons <laughs> to, to, to notice um, a music of a genre I don't particularly care for. But uh, it's good that it was the music was being used there, so that's nice. Because at the end of that film, I I was wishing them success without any caveat or any proviso or anything. I was like, yeah. Ah, oh, come on. I would love to see them succeed. And I think that film actually helped as well as being an entertaining film in and of itself. Yeah. Yes. So, we compared these films and contrasted these films and found them both good. Yes. So, <laughs> I'm not sure that's really the point of this segment of Compare Contrast, but there we go. They were both, we compared them and they were both likeable. Yes. I've kind of dropped the branding. It's really more just <laughs> two films that I wanted to watch at this particular juncture <laughs> these days. So. But. That's what we had to say about these films, Scott. Did other people have things to say? Uh, yes, uh, on the Twitters, at Blake Wright's Perpetual Dumb Machine, of course, from the I'm the Host podcast. Uh, Anvil didn't really affect him much, except as kind of a sad story, but the ending was pretty uplifting and memorable. It is now the only thing I can think of when I listen to Big in Japan. And he's not sure that it's documentaries in general, but Spinal Tap never quite did it for me. Blake, you are a monster. <laughs> you are a monster. Uh, not a monster is Mako Makita. So at Mako Makita, I didn't even know who Anvil were, but I was so moved by the struggle and the end was indeed uplifting. So yes, heartily agree with that. I'm just going to throw this out here. Uh, just 
This is nothing to do with this episode at all, but Matt Toller, I hate you. <laughs> he saw fit, for some reason, to send me earlier today a picture of Dennis Quaid on Twitter. Um, I've barely used Twitter <laughs> since December, and it's monsters like you that have driven me off of it. Uh, <laughs> it's all these monsters posting Dennis Quaid gifts of him quading around. Just quading it up. You, Matt Toller, are a bad, bad man. <laughs> but yes, um, such um, admonitions of terrible people of this universe aside, uh, that's it for this episode. We will be back with you soon with our intermission episode in which we will cover some films. I suspect Ready Player One and Infinity War. One of these films I enjoyed and one I am quite angry about. And I'll let you guess which is which and inform <laughs> you on the next podcast. Uh, until such time, um, I was Drew. Scott over there was Scott. Bye. And we bid you adieu. I already have. Adieu.